funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television license fee. The Railway Children Episode 3 Work and Social Life Come the 1930s, Athlone was a hive of industry. The local historian, Gerald O'Brien, talks about some of the factories in the town which utilised the railway. Well, I suppose the biggest single uh, item of commerce, really, in the early days was the Athlone woollen mills, providing tweed and that for, for uh, suiting and that. So they had a huge amount of, of material to be brought in and out of Athlone, and they would have been very important. That originally was been brought by boat, but once the Midland Great Western got there, they got that kind of contract, which would have been a great contract to get. And then even later then, Gentex opened here in Athlone in 1936. It was a cotton factory, and it was producing, among other things, constellation sheets were their, their big things, bed, bed sheets, uh, and they also produced towels and various other items. But uh, there was a huge exporter of goods from Athlone, and they would have been using the railway in the early days. Billy Henshaw, a well-known character in railway and music circles, tells us about the early years of his railway career. I joined the railway in 1942, and I joined what is called the line of promotion. And the line of promotion that time was, you became a locomotive cleaner first, then you became a fireman, and then eventually, when years passed, you became a steam train driver. I started off in 1942 as a cleaner, and a cleaner that time was a jack of all trades. He had to learn everything. He was a potwallifer of the railway. He had to do everything, from learning how to drive a steam crane, then you had to learn how to drive a steam pump. You had to have water columns in the likes of Roscommon, Castlereagh, Clare Morris, Ballyhonis, where locomotives would stop and fill their tanks up. And this cleaner had to learn how to drive them pumps, and he'd be away maybe for a month down in a place called Manula or any place, pumping water up. So it was a tough life. But I, I was about two years a cleaner, and then I became a steam fireman. Everything went by steam and went by rail that time. There was no hardly any petrol in, in the country. There was no such a thing as diesel, and the coal that we had was really slag. It was it was coal from the slag heaps uh, on top of the mines in Wales and these places. And of course, the locomotives originally were designed to run on Welsh steam coal, but we were trying to run the locomotives on on slag. It was it was fifty percent slate and fifty percent coal. And my first firing turn was to go down with a train I was with a driver called John Norton 
He's dead and gone many years now. Fine man. And we left that loan at one o'clock in the morning. And we got into Westport, I suppose it'll be about maybe 12 o'clock the following day because it'd be 11 hours. Oh, 11 hours was, was quite a, a short trip at the time because the coal was so bad. You had to clean out this fire so many times. But um, we got down and, and then I we, we went to bed and we used to get nine hours rest. No matter what time you got down there, they gave you nine hours from the time you signed off and they had to sign on again. So if you got six hours in bed, you'd be doing well. And it was a rough job and tough. And I, 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 I couldn't see anybody the present day or for the last 40 years doing anything like it. It was gruelling work and long days for the men working on the operational end. And the women of the railway were no strangers to hard work either. Bridie Woods recalls her mother's day-to-day life caring for her family. I never saw my mother without an apron. She was always working. If she wasn't baking, she'd be washing or she'd be cooking. We had a fireplace there and two hobs. And she had an iron pot and a griddle. And then there were smocks. And these smocks had to be washed. You should see the work there was with smocks. And were, it, it wasn't denim. It was whatever other kind of... A harsh material. Yes, yes, yes. And there was no washing machines or anything. Oh, it was hard life, yeah. If they were staying overnight, they had to have a basket. My mother would fill a basket for them. She'd get a, an extra chicken at the weekend and cook it. She did a lot of responsibility. Joe Connolly also remembers stories of the women in his family preparing for his granddad's overnight stays. My mother was Carmel Norton, she married Tim Connolly, and uh, her father was John Norton, who was a train driver all his life. Um, and my mother and my aunt would uh, recount stories of when he was a train driver and he'd be scheduled to, to go. Um, my grandmother would pack his, she had a special bag for him, for his overnight bag. Uh, and they had a little saying in the house when they were packing the bag. She remembers my mother saying, your father has to go. He's been called. He has to go to, to drive whatever. And they had uh, a preparation saying, which was bread, butter, tea, sugar, milk, rashers, sausage, egg, knife, fork and spoon, salt and sandwiches. And that was the same every time the bag was packed. The same um, ingredients were put into it. They would stay in dormitories, the CIE dormitories um, and there was one here in fact in I believe up around Gallus before you come to Gallus Hill there where Joel Lynch's garage is now there was no CIE dormitory where, where I presume the, the drivers from Dublin or Galway would stay when they were in loan likewise uh, my grandfather would stay in the dormitory when he was away so his bag would be packed with the bread, butter, tea, sugar milk, rasher, sausage, eggs, knife, fork and spoon sauce and sandwiches each and every single time that he went off for an overnight stay Although work on the railway was tough, it wasn't without its perks. Specials were popular back in the day. These were occasional trains that were not part of the usual schedule. They were both passenger and goods specials. 
The beat train was a favourite goods special, as it was a big campaign providing additional income for workers around the Christmas period. I spent many a time in Shum. We used to call that, you're going to the beat, when I was a fireman. All sugar at that time was manufactured from sugar beet, and it was a great crop for the farmers in, in Ireland. Tume was, the, the, was the, the nearest place to us where there was a beet factory. And we'd be sent down to the beet every year, and we'd do maybe six weeks in Tume. All the firemen, there'd be a good many fire, junior firemen in that loan, they'd be sent to Tume for the beet. Now, it was a tough job because, first of all, the living conditions were, were deadly at the time. When I think of it now, drivers are put up in hotels and everything. Well, when we'd be sent to the beat, we'd have to stop in sleeping cars. And a sleeping car was nothing, only a carriage with a whole lot of bunks in it. And there'd be a little fire in the middle of it. Uh, Christmas Day, I, I spent twice in Tume on the beat. It'd be one right into January, the, the beat campaign would be going on. And the sleeping conditions were deplorable, but then again, we were that tired, we'd sleep. One of the popular passenger specials in the 50s and 60s was called the Mystery Train. Jean Farrell's family owned a pub in the town which was popular with Mystery Train passengers. During the 1960s, my father, Michael Coyle, had a pub. It was actually the pub opposite the guards' barracks, which is now called Murphy's Law, I think. So at that time, I was the second eldest girl, but I had many young brothers, a little bit younger than me. So Daddy would come up at 2 o'clock for his dinner, and then he'd fall asleep in the chair, and at about 5 to 4, one of the boys, against their wishes, would go down to the pub to open it up. We were the only pub in that area that opened on a Sunday at 4 o'clock. The Palace Bar closed, and Butler's the Square closed. However, big drama used to occur the odd Sunday. From the railway station on the north side of Dublin, you would get a mystery train at 12 o'clock on Sunday morning in Amiens Street, and you had no idea, hence the word mystery, where the train was going. So many, many people came to Amiens Street, got on the train, and the train set off. So they would arrive sometimes at, at alone. And we must remember at this time, the old railway station was over on the Connell side of Athlone. So when they'd arrive in Athlone, they'd all get off the train in droves and all come up along the accommodation road with one aim in mind, to go into the nearest pub for the entire afternoon. So my brother might be behind the counter in the pub with one customer, half asleep, and suddenly the door would open and the entire bar and lounge would fill to capacity within seconds. My brother would rush to the phone, pick it up and say two words, mystery train. Well, there'd be consternation in our house. Daddy would be woken up from his sleep. Anybody who could serve would run down the street to the pub and they'd be absolutely run off their feet for the next three hours while the, these visitors on their holidays almost drank us dry. And then suddenly it would be announced, the train is leaving. And within... Ten minutes, they'd all be gone again. And sometimes, one old man might say to Mammy, where are we, missus? And she'd say, you're in at loan. And that he'd be the only person who'd know what town they were in in Ireland. They'd leave. And Daddy would very happily count his takings. And sometimes he'd take in more during those couple of hours than he might in the whole week. So these mystery trains were absolutely marvellous for business. But the only problem was, we never knew when they were coming. <laughs> but when they did, it was marvellous. Fiora Behan was born and raised in one of the houses beside the railway line, which was once called the Railway Cottages. Vera tells us about some of the perks of living so close to Galvin's Bank. 
I remember there was a fair in Castlereagh with on and off, and you think that the cows was up on the roof. Were they making a lot of noise? Oh, stop kicking and banging and going. And on the way back, you see, if they're going long journeys, they'd have to let the cows out at Galvin's Bank, and the men would milk them, and they'd give all the milk to the people in these houses. The big work started after that. They'd have to shunt all the wagons in, getting them ready for their destination. And that was hard work. And leave it to Christmas, when Christmas would come, there'd be seven engines over the wall going. What yeah. would the seven engines be doing? Whistling in the new year and we haven't gone by to the old one. It was brilliant. Vera also remembers the knock special and other social occasions. Would many people get on that long to go to knock? Oh, packed that time. Yeah. Brilliant in those days. Everyone travelled to knock. They all used to have great times in the saloons at the Christmas time. It was fantastic. Oh, my God. Packed and the singing and dancing. There'd be a wedding on the platform and the trains packed and all their heads out the window looking at the wedding couple and all the families. And one person in particular, I must mention as well, Billy Henshaw and Bridie. The day they got married, Billy was singing and yodeling and everyone, all the windows and all open looking at them. It was brilliant. Of course, everybody went on their honeymoon by train. That was it in any case. And there was no care, very few cares. And even in the 1950s, like there was very few cares or people had cares. And so we got married and we went into the railway station. We were, a big crowd came in all half drunk because it was... Uh, the, the wedding was out here and it was a country wedding and there was barrels of porter drank and some fellas didn't go to work for three or four days after it according to what I was told but we got into the plat uh, onto the railway station it was one or two hackney cars that time and not long he drove us into the platform and, we, and there was a crowd came I don't know how half of them came but they followed us in with bikes and old broken up cars and, and when we went onto the platform didn't two nuns opened the door the saws coming and they said come in here we have a lovely place we're getting out in more so Bridie and I got into the nun and I said to the nuns now says I says I you want to be careful that you don't get a fright because when this train starts off there'll be explosions all over the platform and what used to happen is, if a driver or a fireman got married and he was going away on his honeymoon, the men knew that maybe two or three days before. So there could be ten fog signals all stuck under the wheels, right up along the whole platform. And of course, when the train started off, once the, the, the fog signal was for stopping the train, you'd, you'd, this explosion had happened under the engine, and you'd know immediately there was something terrible wrong in front of you, and you'd stop. But of course the driver and the fireman knew that it was. And the train started off and the next thing there was a fog of smoke all over the railway station for all these explosions. And, uh, but the nuns, uh, the nuns were ready for it. But that was, that was a, you know, a, a custom on, on, the, on the railway that had to be for drivers and firemen that got married. They went off and it would have puff of smoke and anything.
1960, a spectacular event occurred which formed unforgettable memories for many children at the time. The Chipperfield Circus arrived to Atlone on the train. They unloaded at Galvin's Bank and paraded through the streets with elephants and other animals to their destination at the Fair Green. John Butler remembers it well. We were absolutely fascinated to see these, all these animals, that the only place I'd seen them before was in the zoo, home by train. And the railway line was always a fascination for us, because at that time you would also have livestock specials, and you would have even cars um, coming by rail. Everything came by rail. So every day we would be inquisitive to see what was passing through at Lone by on the railway wagons. But this was completely sensational because to see the elephants being unloaded, we never had anything of its size in the town before of a, of a circus. And it was a fantastic circus and fantastic memory of it. To see the elephants all lined up, catching one another from tail to trunk, and they marched them down the Galway Road, up the promenade, up the promenade, Grace Road is called now. And at that time, the bridge, that was in that road, the wooden bridge, and they put the pound across the bridge, right over to the fair green. Despite hard work and long hours, there were many memorable characters who lightened the load with their wit and banter. Billy Henshaw remembers one such character. There was one guy, you know, and I'm going to mention his name, but he was a famous man for putting words together. He came out of this, with this thing one right, it was, it was what they call the locomotive sleeping car. It was a, no, a carriage one, but it was actually purpose built. And this fella, one night, he was in the best room in that lawn, and somebody said to him, where were you uh, last night? Ah, he says, I was in Ballinasloe, he says, with a fair special. We stopped in the sleeping car, he says, and you know what I'm going to tell you, he says. There was flares as big as greyhounds, he says, down there last night. <laughs> as a, I, this fellow was a comedian. <laughs> he said, another time, he said, uh, he said, look at your man, he says, he, he's like a turkey in stubbles with his head up in the air. <laughs> and then, he said, another, another night, he says, this fellow came into the restroom one night with a white, beautiful white shirt. And it was unknown like to wear a white shirt. <laughs> to come into work with a white shirt. And this fellow came in, a driver, and he signed on and left again. And this famous comedian was sitting beside the fire in, in the restroom in his lawn. This is the driver's restroom. And he says, Jesus, he says, did you see the courier van? Isn't it like a cat looking over a joke, he said. 
Yeah, there's not the kind of sins this is for that. And of course, everybody had a great laugh then. We visit Sean Brown at the Castlery Railway Museum, who has in his possession a famous piece of the Midland Great Western Railway history. You have the bell from Athlone that was given to you by Pecky Harney. Where exactly was that it, bell? That bell was on the platform in the old Midland station and written on his MGWR. That was the Midland Great Western Railway, you know, and that's what makes it valuable. And what I remember well, there was a man there, a station master called Leonard, and he used to ring the bell before the train depart. So someone said to him one day, Now, Mr. Leonard, what the hell are you ringing the bell for? Oh, I said, in case of some lady in the toilet. So <laughs> <laughs> no, the, bell, the bell was rang to warn people that the train was they going. They going to depart. And it was, it was shook underneath that thing. And I, I'm delighted to have, because my special interest was with the Midland, because they were the company that operated down here until about 1925. Okay, so you have the bell. What else have you got from Athlone? I have a few of the staffs, you know. Now, what's the staff? The staff is... Well, actually, is given to the driver, and what it really means is that it gives him the position of the line between the two sections that he won't meet the train coming the same direction as himself. It's, just, it's really a, a very important safety uh, safety procedure, you know. So while he's the staff on his train, he's entitled to run his train on the track, and then he hands it over at the next, or she in these days, hands it over at the next station. Yes, right. And the next station then gives him the next one for the next section. And he puts, the signal man then puts that back into the staff instrument, and what happens then is it releases that section of track f- free. It was foolproof, like, you know, and it was very well designed. Actually existed in Castlery until 2007, was there in that loan until about um, I think 85. Okay. We've moved on and the system we now have in place is more automatic. Well, it's called CTC, you know, and that really works with lights, which is it's more efficient really because if you have two trains in a station and you get the staff, you have to go along and clear it and give it back to the, you know. But they have, in Dublin then they have what they call the cause, you know, and the cause really means that if you don't adhere to the signal being read, the brakes are automatically come on the train. So that does not exist now in the Westport line, which is all the pity because you know you have to have you have to be on the ball. You could still break a light, but if you break a light, they're automatically taken down, and you're not allowed to drive the train until you actually you have a medical and all that thing. You know, it's very strict. You know. So if you broke a light, would the train stop? It would stop on the way to Dublin, but it wouldn't stop down here. But the detectors on the railway and the line someplace would actually pick up the you had yeah, broke the. In the old system, when you had the semaphore signals, you, you might break it, but it wouldn't be. You might, you might get away with it, you know. But I like. To, I know my, my heart and soul that all the drivers are very conscious about that fact, you know. Sean gives us a tour, beginning in the driver's seat of the centerpiece of the museum, a locomotive engine which has been converted into an old-style seated carriage. So we're sitting on a seat each side. I have a little skittle to boil, a little test to boil my tea. Have oh, I? That's right, and then you also have, uh, it's very, very simple, because all it consists of is, a, a, you, start to be, you have an accelerator, and then you have a train brake, and you have uh, a local brake. Then you have the dead man's pedal, which is very necessary in case the driver happened to die, that the train would come to a halt itself. What happened when the trains were out first, um, this dead man's pedal it was sort of abused to a certain degree because they just put their bag on the top of it and that we is but a fella came into Kilfree Junction and Jesus didn't fall asleep and the man hadn't the staff to give to him so as a result didn't the train crash 
So after that, then they brought in what they call the vigilant. So what happened is this, a little bell would go, so if you didn't take your foot off it, the brakes come on themselves. What I, what I have here is railway stamps here, and uh, at one time they had their own postal service in the, in, in the, on the railway, you see. And uh, I, I have these for years, but... Um, oh, here they are, the yeah. they're lovely coloured. The first ones I got here are from West Clear, and you put the stamp on the letter, you paid for it, and it was actually carried by train from one station to another. And just uh, this bicycle, there's two bicycles side by side. Yeah. In the old days, it was called a rail bike. You brought an inspector with him, and his job was to see that everything was okay. And he had another fellow with him too, as well, cycling. So they actually used cycle out the railway, and they'd have to tell the signalman they were going out. But they didn't have to bring a staff. But if a train came, they had the job of getting it off quick off the railway line. But you must remember, five foot three is the width of the track, so there, it actually fits the track perfectly. Two bicycles side by side with uh, train tracks. Or wheels yeah, and the, and underneath, the, and, the, and they fit the, the track perfectly. Yeah. Things have changed, but that time they had to do it physically. Okay. So if you had any little fault in the railway line, you get a bit of a bump, you know there was something wrong, you know. Okay. Uh, I have different staffs here that were used actually in Athlone. The one that I have one here is from Carriduff to Athlone. Uh, that, that would be there until about 1963, I think Carriduff closed down. Then I have uh, ones here from Ballinasloe to Carriduff. That would be the opposite side of it. And what happened then, when Caradruff closed down, the section became uh, at Lone to Badness Law. Knockrock is at Lone. That was the other section down at Lone to Knockrock. Now, when, at, when um, at Lone closed down in 84, the section became Knockrock to Driscommon, and CTC operated as far as uh, Knockrock and in the first end in Badness Law. And we were, we were chatting earlier on, these keys would all have um, blood keys that have a different little twist on them. Oh, there were, it was actually six different, there were like keys, and yet so many rings in, at, at different places to, diff, to fit the six different uh, staff instruments. You had A, B, C, D, E, F. I haven't seen that many F, but usually the ones you see down our side will be A, B, and C, you know. Uh, here we have the bell MGWR, which was in at low on West. In, in the cabin, not the cabin, but sorry, in the station in Athlone, uh, Midland, until it closed in 1984. We have a photograph here of a fellow called Eugene Leonard. He was the station master, and he, the man who used to ring the bell right up until the time was closed. <laughs> On the next episode of The Railway Children, we hear about the end of steam, the dawn of diesel, the decommissioning of Galvin's Bank and the closing of the Midland Great Western Railway Station. The Railway Children, presented by Ursula Ledwith, produced and edited by Amanda Gunning, sound engineer Kyle McCallum. Music by the Behan family. The contributors to this episode were Garrod O'Brien, Billy Henshaw, Bridie Woods, Joe Connolly, Jean Coyle Farrell, Vera Harkins Behan, John Butler, and Sean Brown. Special thanks to Castlery Railway Museum, Athlone Down Memory Lane, and Athlone Community Radio. Try to get my money off, try to get my
funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television license fee.